I suspect all of us at one time or another have wondered, um, what's it going to look like uh, in when we go to heaven or that place that we, that we talk about eternal life, the next world? Uh, what's that, what's that going to look like? What will be our, our existence in eternity? And there are lots of theories about that, but we've been talking over the last few weeks about what I think is the biblical perspective, which is not always what we've been taught, at least for me. But I think we will, according to Scripture, I think we will inhabit the new heaven and new earth, that God will redeem this earth, He will restore this earth as He created it to be, and then some. And we will exist here, that we will be bodily resurrected. We will not just be disembodied spirits. Christ doesn't come just to save our souls. He does that. But to, to save every part of our being and to redeem all of us, just as he comes to redeem all of creation, Romans 8 tells us. And, and so we will, we will live on this restored, renewed earth as restored, renewed people. And as we talked last week, uh, we will work. And we will do productive things and we will create because that's what God does. And we bear the image of God. And in that creating, we'll bring glory to God. And it will create relationships with other people. One of the things that I think might be difficult for us to think about is about possessions in heaven. Possessions in, the, in eternal life. I, I would suspect most of us think that probably won't have any. There won't be any possessions at that time. I think maybe there will be. I mean, we are creating, right? If we're creating things, we're going to have things that we've made, that we have brought to life. And so, in some sense, I think we will have those. And when we look at Revelation chapter 21, we find at the end of this, of this uh, chapter... John says, I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. And the nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. And the gates will never be closed at the end of the day, because there is no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. And you look at Isaiah chapter 60... And Isaiah says at the end of that chapter, No longer will you need the sun to shine by day, nor the moon to give its light by night. For the Lord your God will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. It's virtually the same words. The sun will never set, your moon will not go down, the Lord will be your everlasting light, the days of mourning will come to an end. All your people will be righteous, they will possess their land forever. For I will plant them there with my own hands in order to bring myself glory. And the smallest family will become a thousand people. And the tiniest group will become a mighty nation. At the right time, I, the Lord, will make it happen. And then if you jump back to verse 9 or 8, he says, And what do I see like flying like clouds to Israel, like doves to their nests? They're ships from the end of the earth, from lands that trust in me, led by the great ships of Tarshish. They're bringing the people of Israel home from far away, carrying their silver and gold. And they will honor the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has filled you with splendor. Your gates will stay open day and night to receive the wealth of many lands. The kings of the world will be led as captives in a victory procession. It seems like people coming to that eternal city are bringing things with them. When he says the kings of all the nations will bring their glory to the new Jerusalem, it seems as if he's saying they are bringing their possessions. They're bringing their wealth. All the things that they have, they're bringing them for the glory of God. 
it seems to me that there will be possessions there. There will be things that we will have. And in fact, uh, Richard Mao says that he, his impression from the biblical uh, teaching is that the new Jerusalem will be a place of commerce. And people will bring vessels and possessions and things that they've created and made. And he goes on to say that when we talk, we think that God, God says in Psalm um, 78, 48, about destroying the, uh, the enemy and all the ways in which they may come against Israel. And yet the same ships of Tarshish that are mentioned there are mentioned here. And he says, I think the, the answer is that when we talk about destroying or, or breaking them apart, he said, it's that same sense of the earth passing away. It's redeeming it. It is purifying it, not obliterating it. And he said, it will be a breaking of the nations and a breaking of the things that we have, in not like breaking a vase, but like breaking a horse, taming it, purifying it, making it good. I think that's hard for us because we tend to view possessions negatively. If you've grown up in the church, you, we hear over and over again about, you know, don't get tied up in possessions and your possessions are bad and you need to, you know, continually give up your possessions. And so we create, I think, often this negative spirit about it because, quite frankly, possessions can become idolatrous to us. They become idols to us. The reality is, it's something we all deal with because we all have possessions. We all have stuff. And we spend a lot of our lives keeping track of our stuff. When I was in, uh, when I was in high school and college, George Carlin was a famous comedian. And he, he uh, you, you have to listen to him with a little bit of discretion as you do a lot of comedians. Uh, you know, sometimes his language isn't the best, but he's got some insightful ideas. And he's pretty funny about it. But he, I remember this thing he did about stuff. And he's talking about how, he said, I don't know about you, but, but I want to, I always want to know where my stuff is. He said, really, isn't that what life is all about, taking care of our stuff? Isn't, what your, isn't that what your house is? Isn't this just a place for your stuff? Your house is just a pile of stuff with a cover over it. It's just your stuff. And, and, and we, go, we leave our house and we lock the door because we don't want anybody to come and take in our stuff. Because when they come, they always take the good stuff. They don't take the junk that we leave out for them to want them to take. They take the good stuff. Says, Nobody wants our fourth grade longhouse project. Right? Nobody wants that. They want the good stuff. And we lock it up. And he said, isn't it fascinating? We have a whole industry we've created protecting our stuff and storing our stuff. Why? Because our stuff is important to us. And we all have our stuff. However rich or poor we may be, we all have stuff. And we get so enamored with stuff, it's really hard to think that it would be in heaven. It would be in that new heaven and new earth, the place of eternity. But that's because we look at it and we say, well, it's bad. But the reality is our possessions... They're not good or bad. They just are. The problem is our attitude about them. And how we view them and how we use them and what we do with them. That's the issue. Possessions are a gift of God. I think we forget that sometimes. Whatever we have, God has given us because God loves to give. 
When Adam and Eve in the garden, he says over and over again, I give to you, I give to you, I give to you. He says to Abraham, I give to you. He says to Moses, I give to you. Israel, I give to you. What's the, what's the great promise that God gives to Israel that gives them the, the, the impetus to come and leave Egypt and think about where they're headed? He says, I have a land that you're going to possess that I'm giving to you. You have a place. I'm going to bless you with all kinds of wonderful things in that place. And you're going to have all kinds of great things because they're gifts from me. Our possessions, however they come to us, are gifts of God. The problem is we corrupt them. I mean, that that becomes the issue, that we corrupt our possessions. And now what God gave to us, what was a good gift, we twist and turn like we do everything else. In his book, Culture Making, Andy Crouch talks about writing one, writing one of the chapters, <coughs> excuse me, sitting in his family room in front of a fire on a cold winter day. And he says, I stopped writing for a second and I was watching the fire. And he says, I love watching the fire in the fireplace. I love the, the I love the visualness of it. I, I love the, the crackling of the of the flames and the wood. And he said, but I only like it because it's in the fireplace. If that fire jumped out of the fireplace onto my wood floor into a fire not place, I don't think I would like it as much. Because that's not what it was designed to do. And and no one no one sits around reading a book in a forest fire. Right? I mean, that's not what it was intended to do. It's only when it's confined into its proper space that it is good. And that's possessions. See, possessions can be something over which we are master or something that enslaves us. And in many ways, that is the issue. Does what we have enslave us or do we use it as masters of it? We're continually confronted with that decision. Slave or master. Who's going to control this? Do do we control those things or do they control us? And the struggle for all of us, every single person who has ever lived and ever will live, is that we, we are tempted to be enslaved by stuff. And it might be, your stuff might be different than my stuff, but it's still our stuff and we're enslaved by it. We are continually tempted to let it run our lives instead of using it for the good that God intended it to be. And so Jesus says in Matthew 6, look, you you cannot serve two masters. You think you can serve the master of God and the master of mammon or money or things, but you can't. Because you'll end up either loving the one and hating the other or despising the one and being devoted to the other, but you can't love both. It's just impossible. And we are continually confronted with that question. What are possessions to us? So, what does it mean to have a resurrection perspective about our possessions? What does that look like? Because we are preparing now for that day. And when you think about what it's going to be like on that day, what we're doing now is preparing us for that. We are setting the stage because 
often we think, I hear people say this in one way or another, well, I'm going to do my own thing, and then near the end of my life, I'll turn around and follow God. Well, that presumes, first of all, that you know when the end of your life is going to be, which is not always the case. But it misses the whole point. Because what we spend our lives doing, preparing for, our priorities, that's what we're going to want in eternity. And that's why in The Great Divorce, Lewis says, you know, people who in hell are given a bus trip to heaven. They look all around and they're invited to stay. But nobody wants to stay because heaven doesn't offer anything that they want. They don't want that perspective because they haven't, they've never lived with that perspective. So what does a resurrection view of our possessions look like? I think it's both what we take in and what we give out. I think it has to do with some way figuring out how to say no more often. How to, how to buy less. How to have less stuff. I love gadgets. I mean, I, you know, I love all kinds of gadgets. And in fact, one of my favorite stores to go into, I probably shouldn't admit this to you, is, uh, is those kitchen stores in the mall. I love those stores. I mean, you're talking about gadgets, central. Wow. They got gadgets for everything. And there's a part of me that's looking at this stuff going, oh, that's awesome. Wow, I'd love to take that home and try that out. You can do that with a grape? Wow, I had no idea. That's exactly what I've been looking for. That will fulfill my life. Right? I mean, and, and my, I can feel my pulse quicken just a little bit when I walk in those stores because I'm thinking, this is, this is awesome stuff in here. That's not, it doesn't quicken quite as much as an electronic store or a Barnes & Noble, but, you know, it gets me going a little bit. And, and I've got drawerfuls of things at home, gadgets, that I used once and never looked at again because it didn't, wasn't able to do that to a grape that I was hoping it was going to do. And I'm thinking, that was really not a wise purchase. And there is something to be said for thinking about what we get. Because we, somehow we think if we have that, it's going to do for us what that yearning inside of us. It's going to make us feel better. It's going to answer something in us. Do you remember this, the book when you were young, or maybe you read to your kids, I Know an Old Lady? Do you know that book? Do you guys read that one? Do anybody, people know this book? A few people. I Know an Old Lady Who Swallowed a Fly. I don't know why she swallowed a fly. I guess she'll die. I don't know a lady who swallowed a spider that wriggled and wriggled and tickled inside her. She swallowed a spider to catch the fly. I don't know why she swallowed the fly. I know a lady who swallowed a bird, swallowed the bird to catch the spider that wriggled and wriggled and tickled inside her. I don't, she called a spider to catch the fly. I don't know why she swallowed the fly. I guess she'll die. I know a lady who swallowed a cat, swallowed the cat to catch the bird, swallowed the bird to catch the spider that wriggled and wriggled and tickled inside her, swallowed the spider to catch the fly. I don't know why she swallowed the fly, I guess she'll die. And it goes on and on and on until you get to the last part of it. And it says, an old lady swallowed a cow. I don't know how she swallowed a cow. But she swallowed the cow to catch the pig, she swallowed the pig to catch the goat, swallowed the goat to catch the dog, swallowed the dog to catch the cat, swallowed the cat to catch the bird, swallowed the bird to catch the spider that wriggled and wriggled, tickled inside her, swallowed the spider to catch the fly. And I have no idea why she swallowed the fly. I guess she'll die. And then you get to the very last page. And it says, I know an old lady who swallowed a horse. She's dead, of course. <laughs> I'm thinking, maybe we shouldn't read some of these books to our children, right? <laughs> like Grimm's fairy tales. No wonder they have nightmares at night. Horses and cows and stuff, you know. You... I not really thought much about that story until I read Matthew Sleeth's book, Save God, Serve the Planet. 
serve God and save the planet. And he says, he said, that, that story really is in many ways a metaphor for our desire to consume, thinking it will do for us what it can't do. I don't know why, you know, no, doesn't say why the woman swallowed the fly. That's one of the questions of the book. But something in her says, I've got a problem here and it needs to be addressed. And I think something bigger will address it. And so the spider, and something, that isn't it either. Well, something bigger. And so the bird, and then something bigger. And all of these things keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, thinking that they will take care of the problem inside of me. But it only leads to death. Right? And, and we think that our consuming, we think that having more is going to answer the yearning inside of us, and it doesn't. It never does. It doesn't work that way. And so I think we need to ask ourselves some questions before we make, you know, big purchases. Is, is that going to help me be a better follower of Jesus or anything about that? Maybe the question is, is it going to help me be a better witness to other people? Do I, am I buying this because I feel like it might make me feel better inside? And it's not intended to put guilt on us. And we all, you know, we, uh, I'll be honest with you, this is a journey for me. I mean, I wrestle with this because I like stuff. And, I, and there's something inside of me that wrestles with, if I have some more of this stuff, I'll feel better inside. We all have it. We all wrestle with it. And just stopping every so often and asking ourselves the question, is that something that I, that I really need? Is there a better use of my resources than that? And sometimes the answer is, yes, this, will, this is a good thing. And then, okay. But just asking the question is huge for most of us. But it's not just about what we take in. It's what we do with it. What do we do with what we have? And when we read the scriptures, when we think about eternity, the one word that describes it is Generosity. We're created in the image of God. Genesis is clearly clear about that. And one of the primary characteristics of God is generosity. You see it from beginning to end. God is generous to Adam and Eve. God is generous to Abraham. God is generous to Noah. God is generous to Moses. God is generous to Israel. God is generous to everyone all up and down the line of history. And what is it John writes about Jesus and about God. He says, God so loved the world that he gave. Generous. It is the nature of God. And when we get to our eternal existence on the new heaven and new earth, what will define every single person there is generosity. Because generosity looks like God and that brings glory to God. We will be generous. We get a glimpse of that in Acts 4. The picture of the early church. These are people who are filled with the Spirit of God. So you would expect what comes out of them is God. And what does it say? They were all united in one mind and heart, and they had everything in common. And when everyone had any need arose, they shared. Their whole perspective was, what's mine is yours. Period. We're in this thing together. What's mine is yours. They shared everything they had. Paul writes to Timothy and says, 
talks about uh, helping people take on this aura, this mindset of being ready to share with anyone. These are people that don't have to think about it so much. It just comes out of them. It's just who they are. It's the Spirit of God at work in them. And it's not natural for us. Our sinful nature wants to hoard, wants to be stingy, wants to be greedy. That's our sinful nature. It is the Spirit of Christ that makes us generous. And we give. We become generous people. That's the nature of the kingdom. And I think, to look at through Scripture, I think that generosity, I'm a little hesitant to say this because it feels a little self-serving, but I'm saying it because it's true and I think it's important. But when you look at Scripture, generosity with God's people always begins by giving to the temple or the tabernacle or the church. That's the first place that we're generous. It's with each other. That's not the end of our generosity, but it starts there. Not everyone agrees with this, but I, I believe in the principle that Malachi describes in his, uh, in his prophetic word of storehouse tithing. And he says, bring into the storehouse, bring to the temple your tithes. I think the 10%, the tithe that we give comes to the church. And then we trust God to give even more, to be generous. And we give to things like faith promise. And we give to things like mission group going athletes and other mission organizations and missionaries or, or good charities in our, in our world. We give to help people in need. We do what we want to be generous, but it, and it starts here. And I find that people are, people are either generous or we're not. I mean, that's, you know, either we're generous or we're not generous. But I think it starts here. And without, without giving to the church, we would have no church. We would have no building to be in. We would have, if we had a building, we wouldn't have lights and heat. And we wouldn't have a place to teach our children and our youth. And, and we wouldn't have, wouldn't be able to run a food pantry. And we wouldn't be able to help people who are getting their heat turned off. We wouldn't have any of those kinds of things if we didn't give to the church. So I want to encourage you to think about that, but not let that limit our generosity. It should just be bigger and bigger and bigger. And we base that generosity in the fact that Jesus says that God will always take care of us. In this passage in Matthew 6, he talks about storing up treasures in heaven instead of on earth. But he also goes on and says, your heavenly father knows that you need food and clothing and and shelter. He knows all of that. He'll take care of you. He'll take care of you. And you have to trust him in that. And in that eternal existence, we will be generous because we will trust God implicitly. And our generosity and our trust is really just reflecting the nature of God. But you know, it's, it's not easy to be generous. We want to hang on to things. And sometimes it feels like a legalistic burden. And that's not my intent. It's one of my prayers all week was, Lord, I don't want what we talk about today to come across as, 
as making people feel guilty or to feel legalistic or to feel burdened. Because the reality is, when we live with the spirit of, of thoughtfulness about what we get, and we live with the spirit of generosity about what we have, there's not guilt and there's not burden. There's freedom. There is great freedom in being generous. There's great freedom in giving. It is, it is the freedom that God gives us to be released from enslavement to stuff. It's a gift of God. And, and we are set free from the chains of things when we have a spirit of generosity and when we think about the things that we are getting. I was thinking about that recently as... Um, about a year ago, we were in the middle of uh, just finishing up the office remodel. And uh, there were some generous gifts that were given to the church. We were able to do that. And it looks nice. If you haven't been over there, I mean, it's, it's wonderful. But all, and all of us in the process of this, we added a conference room and we added an extra office. And in that process, everyone's square footage of office changed a little bit. And my office went from being about 375 square feet to about 150 square feet. And while I was certainly in favor of the remodel, I thought it was a great idea, there was a thing in the back of my mind going, ooh, boy, I don't know how I'm going to do that. That's going to be hard. And I'd go over there and I'd look at the, you know, the uh, studded walls and look at this roof space and think, man, this is really small. Ooh. Because there's something prestigious about having a big office. You know, people walk in and go, ooh, you must be important. Look at this big office you have, right? And, and it, was, it just had a lot of space. I had like 28 linear feet of bookshelf space. And now I'm gonna, I was going to be down to 19 linear feet of bookshelf space. And I had six file cabinets in that office. And I can guarantee you, if you put six file cabinets in my current office, you would hardly be able to move around. So it forced me to think about that. So I went through my books weaned through a lot of them, gave a lot of them away. With the help of some other people, digitized all my files. I had couches in there, which came in handy sometimes for larger meetings or for, you know, thinking uh, later in the day. Uh, and, you know, I didn't have any of that stuff. It's two chairs. And, and, and I was concerned about that transition, to be honest with you. I've been in that office about a week and I'm thinking to myself, and now after a year, nothing has changed. I love, love, love my new office. I wouldn't go back for anything. In fact, I keep thinking, why did we do this 10, 15 years ago? It, first of all, the, the, um, the space, the other space was more like a meeting room. This space feels like a place to think and to study and to pray. There's just something about the, the, the size of it. And I have plenty of room for my things I need. And, and it was freeing to be able to downsize. I didn't need all those books. I didn't need those file cabinets. I didn't need all that furniture. And there's something freeing about that that I didn't know was going to happen to me until it did. And it, it really inspired Cindy and, and I to go home and we started going through our stuff. And, and if you come to the uh, garage sale, the yard sale down at the fire hall in a couple of weeks, you can take some of our stuff home with you and it can be your stuff now. Right? 
But we both said it is so freeing to just let go. Something about holding things lightly. And I find that when things break and when things get lost and when something happens to stuff, I'm a lot less exercised about it. Just something about letting go that brings freedom. Think about a little child with their hands around their toys saying, mine, mine, mine. Do you see joy and freedom on their face when they do that? No. Fear, anger, anxiety, right? And yet how often do we do that as well? In his book, When Saul... When the game is over, it all goes back in the box. John Orberg, it's a great book, he has a title. One title of one of his chapters is, Remember, Your Stuff Isn't Yours. The more I've thought about that, I think I disagree with him. I think our stuff is ours. I think God gives it to us. And God says, look, it's yours. I'm giving it to you. You look at Acts chapter 5. After they talked about the disciples sharing everything and people are selling fields and bringing the money... Ananias and Sapphira sell a field, bring the money and lay it at the disciples' feet and say, here it is, here's everything. And what they don't tell them is, we kept a lot back. And so they lie to them. And Peter says, why did you do that? It was your field, you could sell it or not if you wanted to. And it's your money that you got from it. Do whatever you want with it. It's ours. What we forget is that what we do with it, we're going to be held accountable for. And what we do with it reveals what's in our hearts. And what we do with it shapes who we are. And so in that sense, Orberg is right. So my question is, if, if in eternity we have possessions and, and we treat them with generosity and openness and spirit of sharing and giving to bring glory to God, what's stopping us from starting that now? What's stopping us from living in that freedom now? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace and mercy in our lives, for all the gifts you give us. We are grateful. This morning, Father, we, we come to this, uh, this time of prayer and recognize not only our needs and your grace to us, but also the needs of so many others. So this morning we pray for all who are grieving. We pray for all who are struggling with hurt and pain and the variety of ways that comes to us. We pray, Father, for all of the needs and the burdens, worrying about the future that's out in front of us as well. Lord, we pray for our church, and we thank you for this church. We thank you specifically for the elders of our church and their leadership, and we pray that you continue to lead them and guide them as they lead us. We pray, Father, for the churches around us, and we think of the St. Paul's Lutheran Church and Angelica and Pastor Hoyt. Pour out your blessing upon them in their worship and in all that they do is light in their world. We pray, Father, for the people of Flint, Michigan, as they continue to struggle with their water issues, and we pray that you would bring resolution to that difficult situation. And we think about the bigger world. We pray for the people of Ecuador who just experienced this earthquake and 
Almost a hundred people so far have died and many other injured and so much damage. And we pray that your grace would be present there and that your church and your people would be a presence for you there. Father, we pray for the teams and the students that were going out on trips this summer. May your blessing rest upon them as they raise support and as they go. And may these trips be life-changing for them. And Father, we pray for all the Global Partners missionaries who will be coming to Houghton this summer. We ask that this will be an awesome time together of fellowship and learning and, and, and walking with you. And Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Nigeria. So many attacks and murders, persecution, difficulties, threats. Keep them close to you. And as they attempt to bring some resolution and recovery, may their hearts reflect your grace. Lord, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for your spirit upon us. Give us your heart. And in in doing, may we find your freedom and your joy. And we pray this through Christ. Amen.